Turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 2. We continue our series on the seven churches in Revelation. If you don't have a Bible, the scripture will be on your sermon guide so that you can follow along. Revelation 2, starting in verse 12. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon and war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. How does the church function as light in the darkness? It's the question that Jesus brings to light in chapter one as we learn that he is the one who is walking among the lampstands. The lampstands being the imagery for the church. Lampstands were articles of furniture in the tabernacle in the Old Testament, and the priests would have to care for them daily adding fresh oil, trimming the wick so that they would burn brightly and be light in the tabernacle, symbolizing God's presence and light in a dark world. And now we find Jesus, our great high priest, walking among the lampstands, adding fresh oil, trimming the wicks so that his church can shine brightly in a dark world. It's incredible how relevant these letters are. This letter to the church in Pergamum deals with something that is very central to our culture today, and that is truth. In the case of Pergamum, part of the church losing the truth. But we live in a world today that doesn't believe that there is absolute truth that doesn't change. Truth is up for grabs. Truth is what you make it to be. Truth is what will enhance your life. And so it's very relative. So the church functioning as light in the darkness is all about the church operating with an, with an understanding of truth. How does the church function as light in the darkness in regards to truth? First, by holding to the truth. What do we know about Pergamum? Well, in verse 13, Jesus says it's, where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells. What does this mean? Let's start with the context or the situation in Pergamum, and then we'll move to an explanation of Satan that we see in Revelation chapter 13. Pergamum, as was all of or were all of these cities under the control the power of Rome. And because of that, as we've seen, there was immense pressure 
to worship the emperor and to confess that Caesar was Lord. Pergamum was actually a center for this kind of worship. It was a leader in that. It was the first city in Asia Minor to build a temple to a Roman ruler, Caesar Augustus. It was a city that prided itself as the center and leader of emperor worship. I lived in Austin, Texas for two years during grad school and learned very quickly that it is a city that prides itself on being the live music capital of the world. If you get off an airplane at the end of the jetway in Austin, you're going to see a big sign that says, live music capital of the world. As you make your way down the terminal and out of the airport, you will probably see that sign plastered all over the place. And there's some truth to it. It's a great city for, for live music. Pergamum was promoted, marketed, celebrated for being the emperor worship capital of the world. Not only that, is also it was the center for many pagan cults and gods. The serpent symbol of the god of healing became one of the emblems of the city. Think of it as the uh, emblem that would be on the chamber of commerce material. Also had a large iconic hill uh, at its center or right behind it that was the host for many temples, including one throne-like altar for Zeus. So that's the, that's the situation, the backdrop of Pergamum. Why does Jesus say then that Pergamum is the place where Satan's throne is and where Satan dwells? Well, John gives us an explanation that is helpful uh, in Revelation chapter 13. I'm going to take you through a few verses. Verse 2, And the beast that I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. And its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon, or Satan, gave his power and his throne and great authority. Then in verse 4, And they worshipped the dragon, Satan, for he had given his authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast. Verse 5, And the beast was given a mouth, uttering haughty and blasphemous words. Verse 7, also it was allowed to make war on the saints and to conquer them. What we learn here is that Satan gave uh, the beast his authority and his throne. Now, who was the beast? And who was the beast in Pergamum? Well, we learn that this beast spoke. The beast was the ungodly earthly powers that were persecuting God's people in Pergamum. That Satan worked through earthly power. That he worked through ungodly earthly power to bring this persecution. So Pergamum was a very dark place, and it was a very difficult place for Christians to live and to remain faithful. But in the midst of this, Jesus finds some in the church in Pergamum, verse 13, who hold fast to his name and those who did not deny their faith in Christ. Even in the midst of this persecution, we learn about a martyr, Antipas. We don't know anything about him other than what we read in this letter, that he was uh, among them, which is critical. This is one 
uh, someone who was near and dear to them, probably, presumably, a member of their congregation who was killed, martyred for his faith in Christ. And even in the face of death, they held fast to Jesus. Now, this is in sharp contrast to some in the church that we learn about in verse 14 who were holding on to the teaching of Balaam. So you have some who were holding fast to Christ, and then you have others who were holding to the teaching of Balaam. Now, who was Balaam? Balaam was a prophet. His story is told in the Old Testament in Numbers chapters 22 to 24. Balak, uh, king of Moab, hired Balaam to curse the tribes of Israel right before they crossed the Jordan to take the promised land. The problem is that every time Balaam tried to curse, nothing but blessing would come out of his mouth. So he came up with an alternative plan or strategy for the downfall of Israel. He told Bala, king of Moab, to get Moabite girls to seduce Israelite men into sexual morality, into practicing in these idolatrous feasts. And so like Balaam, the false prophets or false teachers in the Pergamum church were encouraging God's people to participate in these idolatrous feasts and activities Now, in contrast to Balaam, we don't get the sense that these false teachers in Pergamum were intentionally trying to draw God's people away from the truth. What we we see is that they were more trying to rationalize this kind of participation, saying something to the effect of, you can be a part of these feasts and idolatrous religious festivals as long as you don't believe in the gods that they're worshiping. Now, like Balaam, who was motivated by financial gain, the false teachers in Pergamum were motivated by financial gain. As I have said, uh, the trade guilds or trade associations were big uh, in these cities and certainly in Pergamum. To make money, to have a business that would be successful and prosperous, you really had to be in one of these trade guilds. And these trade guilds were very much tied up with these religious festivals and idolatrous feasts. And so there was great pressure, right, to be a part of these guilds and associations to make money, but you had to compromise to do it. The rationalization from the false teachers probably looked something like this. Listen, God wants you to put food on the table. He wants you to be able to provide for your family, to have a roof over your head. So just participate and these idolatrous feasts, and and maybe even in some of the immoral activity that happens at them. Just just do it. As long as you don't believe in the gods that are being worshipped. And if you do it, then you can be a part of this trade guild and make money and have a successful business. And Jesus says, no, this is a huge deal. Why? And it gets to this issue of holding on to you will hold on to whatever gets you what your heart most wants. This is where compromise 
begins. It's where compromise began in the church in Pergamum. You know, most of the time, we don't intentionally set out to compromise the truth. We compromise because something or someone has become more important to us than Jesus Christ. And usually, we justify our compromise by some piece of truth. Let me give you a few examples. God wants me to get married. Marriage is a good thing. God created marriage. So I'll compromise and marry someone I'm not sure is a believer. Or another example. God wants me to have friends and not be alone. After all, God created us to live in community and to be in community. So I'll compromise my morality and my ethics to get friends. He'll understand. Or another example, God wants me to reach the lost. So to reach them, I need to go where they go and do what they do in order to gain a hearing, to be relevant. Before long, you may find yourself in a dark place down a dark path. I saw this very thing happen to a, a pastor in North Carolina. He set out with a very, very pure and admirable desire to reach the lost. And he found himself more and more in bars late at night. And that led to him becoming an alcoholic and beating his wife because he spent too much time in these places. The point is this. If financial security is more valuable than Christ, then you will compromise truth to get it. If marriage is more valuable than Christ, then you will compromise truth to get it. If community is more valuable than Christ, then you will compromise truth to get it. If reaching lost people is more valuable than Christ, then you will compromise truth to reach them. If your heart wants something or someone more than Christ, then you are set up for compromise because you will hold on to whatever will get you what your heart most wants. If Christ is your prize and treasure, then everything else answers to his truth. So how does the church function as light in the darkness? First, by holding on to the truth. Second, by speaking the truth. Jesus follows his praise of the Pergamum church with a rebuke. As we see in verse 14, and as I have explained, there were false teachers who were leading God's people astray. And Jesus' rebuke is certainly of these false teachers and what they're doing, but his rebuke is that these faithful ones in Pergamum are remaining silent, that they're tolerating it, that they're not saying anything. And it begs the question, why? Why were these faithful ones in Pergamum, not saying anything? Why weren't they confronting? 
the letter doesn't give us exact reasons. But from the context and to the broader context of the New Testament, I think we can see clear reasons why they didn't confront and why we don't confront. Reason number one, fear of rejection and backlash. Remember, these people had compromised by engaging in the religious festivals, the idolatrous feasts, because there was a a financial motive in place, that if they participated in these feasts, they could be in the trade guild and therefore have a business and and make money. Now realize, to to call out that compromise and for them to, to turn from those feasts and potentially not be in the trade guild could be very costly. They could lose income. They could lose a business. They could become poor. A number of times I've been asked to marry a Christian couple that is living and sleeping together. And the most recent time, I asked the man who I I knew why he had chosen to move in with her, even though it was against his parents' wishes who were solid believers and deep down against his own truth convictions. And his answer was very simple. He said, Keith, it made financial sense. One apartment instead of two. Now, imagine the cost of calling out that compromise. Maybe nine months, a year before the wedding that would involve him moving out, getting another apartment, signing a lease, the expense of that. You see, it's because of the cost of calling out compromise that we have a great fear of rejection and a fear of backlash. Reason number two, radical individualism and a lack of understanding of God's design for the church. Individualism runs rampant in our Western Western culture. Individual happiness is elevated above just about everything else. Uh, It tends to turn the gospel into uh, about me and Jesus. It turns weekly attendance in church into just coming in a silo to exercise my vertical relationship with God. God describes something very different for the church. He calls his people to a communal mindset. And there's a couple examples in scripture that highlight this. The Old Testament in Joshua chapter seven, Achan steals some of the devoted things that were supposed to be put in the Lord's treasury. God could have singled Achan out, but he didn't. All of Israel suffered in the ensuing battle where they were defeated soundly. One person's sin caused the entire community of Israel to suffer. And you say, well, that's Old Testament. Well, God doesn't change his mindset from old to new. He doesn't go from a, a, a God that calls people to a communal mindset to the New Testament calling people to an individual mindset. In fact, when Jesus calls his 12 disciples, he is reconstituting the 12 tribes of Israel, that the church is the new Israel. 
And so the, the parallel to Joshua 7 in the New Testament is 1 Corinthians 5, where there's a man in the Corinthian church who is caught in, uh, or caught, he's in sexual immorality. And nobody in the church will say anything about it. Nobody's addressing him. See, one, one person's sin affects the whole body, and the whole body is accountable for one person's sin. We see this uh, in beautiful imagery in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, where the church is described as a, a body. When one part suffers, the rest suffers. You know, when you break your arm, your body doesn't create a firewall that allows your arm to rot and fall off. No, your, your body sends resources to your arm to bring about healing. One of the reasons that we fail to confront and fail to call out compromise and sin is because we don't understand God's design for the church. And then the third reason, and this is somewhat of a derivative of reason number two, but reason number three, accommodating the cultural belief that you can't push your beliefs on anyone else and that truth is relative. You have complete freedom to decide what is true for you. Just don't impose it on anybody else. And this creeps into the church and it looks a little bit different, but this is what it looks like in the church. My sin is my business. Your sin is your business. And my sin is none of your business. And God says, no, your sin is your business and your sin is his business. And her sin is her business, but her sin is your business. That God calls us to this communal mindset that we have a responsibility towards the other person. This explains God's response to the faithful one's tolerance of these false teachers in Pergamum. It's, it's, it's striking, especially when you consider Jesus' opening praise of these faithful ones in Pergamum who have not denied him, who are standing firm. But then he, he rebukes them in verse 16. And he commands them, therefore, repent. Note who is called to repentance. Clearly, clearly Jesus is calling the false teachers to repentance. But no, when you read it, who is he primarily calling to repentance? It's the faithful ones who have remained silent, who haven't said anything. God calls you to be a prophet. Paul, in his letter to the Ephesian church, as in chapter four, speak the truth in love. And he says that to the Ephesians as they're dealing with false doctrine and false teachers. Repeatedly in the New Testament, Paul commands believers to admonish one another. That word admonish means to, to instruct or to speak the truth of God's word into each other's lives. Love becomes sentimental if it's not strengthened by truth. Truth becomes hard if it's not softened by love. Dietrich Bonhoeffer writes this, there is no kindness more cruel than the kindness which consigns another 
person to their sin. So where do you get the strength to speak the truth? And where do you get the strength to speak the truth in love? Verse 17. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Probably the, the greatest reason that we don't confront compromise or that we don't speak the truth is fear of rejection. And what's beautiful is that Jesus understands this. He understands that he's calling these faithful ones in Pergamum to something that's very difficult and that potentially could be very costly. And so he gives them power and strength to do it in verse 17. Three words uh, that we need to unpack. Hidden manna, white stone, new name. Hidden manna is in contrast to these idolatrous feasts, these $200 plate dinners that people are enjoying. And, and Jesus says, no, I've got some hidden manna for you. He's referring to the, the supper, the feast at the end of time when Jesus returns the marriage supper of the lamb. The white stone has two meanings. A white stone was common, commonly associated with a vote of acquittal or a, a vote of not guilty. A black stone indicated guilt. A white stone was also used as a, as a passive admission to, to special occasions. And so in this context, context it means the, the reversal of the guilty verdict that is being handed down on God's people by, by these earthly powers for not worshiping the emperor. Jesus says, no, you've got a white stone of acquittal, a not guilty verdict. And in addition, this white stone is your invitation to the feast with me when I return. The new name is picked up in Revelation 14 where it says that the name of Christ will be written on their foreheads. A new name equals a new status. So where do you get the strength to speak the truth? Your new name and the stone of acquittal. You don't fear rejection because you have the only acceptance that matters. And no one or nothing can take away your acceptance in Christ. Now, where do you get to the, the strength to speak the truth in love? Because I realize I could be setting up a lot of you to, to grab hold of some truth bombs and go launch them this week in a way that's unhealthy, hurtful, and destructive. So where do you get the strength not only to speak the truth, but to speak the truth in love, to do it in a loving way? because you realize you didn't earn the hidden manna, you didn't earn the white stone, and you didn't earn the new name. The verdict of not guilty is on you because Jesus took your guilty verdict. You have a new status of acceptance because Jesus took your old status of condemnation and judgment. 
You speak the truth from the posture of humility and love, not pride and anger. Why does Jesus come down so hard on these faithful ones in Pergamum who are failing to speak up? Why does he come down so hard on them? Because the church is called to be light in the darkness. If the church adopts the value system of the world, then it becomes irrelevant. And it falls prey to one of the critiques that has been levied against it for centuries now, that Christianity is just a crutch. That it's not the truth, that it's just simply one of many truths that you can latch onto to get what you want. It's a crutch to, to help you to get what you want. And when the church functions that way, it doesn't solve the problem, it, it adds to the problem. It becomes darkness. And darkness is not relevant to darkness. Light is relevant to darkness because light can explain the darkness and provide a way out of the darkness. That's why Jesus says, hold on to the truth and speak the truth as my prophets. Let's pray. Father, we live in a world that doesn't believe in absolute truth. We live in a culture where truth is what you want it to be, what you make it to be. And yet, Jesus, you call your church to hold on to the truth, to hold fast to you and not to the, the little t truths of this world. You call your church to be light because it does hold to the truth. And yet, many of us are not only guilty of not holding on to the truth and maybe compromising, and maybe we're in the midst of a compromise, but we're guilty of not speaking the truth to others. And, and even within the body, within the church, of seeing, seeing someone compromise, and because of fear of rejection, and ultimately because of love of self, we don't say anything. Jesus, would you give us the strength? to speak the truth in love, that we would know of this hidden manna, this feast that we're gonna have with you one day that's gonna be glorious, that we would hold on to the white stone knowing that we're accepted in you, Jesus, and because we have your acceptance, no one else's acceptance matters, which gives us the courage to speak the truth in love. And I do pray that, that we would be a body, a church that does speak truth in a loving way, in a redemptive way, that your church could shine. And we pray this all in Christ's name. Amen.